Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest healthcare or clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches can network, discuss, and share ideas related to sports med, rehab, and performance. So to join the forum or a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete directory and all upcoming events, details can be found on the website clinicalathlete.com. This podcast can be found on that same website, YouTube, iTunes, soon to be Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, all the fancy ones. So stay tuned for that. My name is Quinn Hennick, and I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. My clinic is named Clinical Athlete Newport, and we're joined by a very special guest, Eric Helms. Eric is a PhD in strength and conditioning focused on auto-regulation in powerlifting with a master's in sports and exercise science. Uh, sport and science focused on protein and macronutrient manipulation in bodybuilding and diet strength athletes. He's the co-founder and chief science officer at 3D Muscle Journey alongside Alberto Nunez, uh, Andrea Valdez, Brad Loomis, and Jeff Alberts, as well as the co-founder of the Mass Research Review alongside Greg Knuckles and Dr. Mike Zordos. So those are fantastic resources. He's a research fellow at the Sports Performance Research Institute, New Zealand, and chief author of the Muscle and Strength Pyramid books. Basically, he knows how to get people jacked, and he's done a lot <laughs> of research on the topic. If the academic accolades weren't enough, He's also a pro-qualified natural bodybuilder and powerlifter, so he walks the walk. Eric, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Honored to be here. Absolutely. Uh, can you tell our six listeners a little bit more about yourself and, and kind of what led you to be passionate about these things and you know to reach the pinnacle of your career now being a guest on the Clinical Athlete Podcast? Yeah, well, uh, first I want to thank my mother and then, uh, you know, God and just, just want to say that, you know, I knew I'd make it here one day and, uh, thank you for having me. Um, I know I can die in peace now, but yeah, so, so what, what led me to hear, um, why did I become like one of three people on the planet who actually studies, uh, like bodybuilding and powerlifting at at the furthest level you can academically? Uh, man, this goes way back to when I first got into lifting and it was very much an outlet for me. Um, and, uh, when I first competed, I was actually just talking to my wife about this while we were eating dinner last night. Um, it was, it was just like a dumpster fire. You know, it was, it was, it was a shit show. It was, uh, done in every unhealthy way imaginable. And that experience in 07, um, unfortunately parallels a lot of experiences that a lot of bodybuilders have, uh, a lot of physique competitors in every division. Um, and that's what kind of became the progenitor experience that that led to 3DMJ forming itself. Because we were we've always been about um, trying to help build up individuals, uh, and then therefore that makes them better athletes. Kind of that John Wooden approach uh, to just just apply to bodybuilding. And um, it's very common that people uh, pursue unhealthy practices, either psychologically or even physically, uh, in 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 the sport of uh, physique competition. So. Um, creating a sustainable model for coaching, uh, for just a perspective on being a bodybuilder, um, and trying to get more evidence-based information out there has kind of been our, you know, three-pronged approach to, to hopefully improving the lives and the health of, of, uh, people who partake in, in physique sport. Well, and that's exactly why we wanted to get on, get you on the show. So we're going to talk specifically about injuries and, and injury risk reduction 
in and around post-competition in physique athletes. But I think that is applicable, you know, physique athletes are trying to build and maintain muscle mass and within, you know, strength qualities within that, that's applicable to many athletic endeavors. So that's why we wanted to get you on the show and then the the psychology that's kind of wrapped around that. So what are you seeing in regards to injury rates in general during prep for these athletes? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, the, um, if you were to look at the literature on injury rates in, in like strength sport, and if you're including bodybuilding in that, uh, bodybuilding is pretty comfortably at the lower end of the list. You know, I think actually the lowest end of the list, you know, weightlifting, powerlifting, CrossFit are kind of in the middle. Um, and then the Highland games and strongman tend to have the highest injury rates. And it kind of makes sense if you think about, you know, the biomechanical demands of each, and then also like the, the, the fatigue components of each one as well. Um, and power and, you know, bodybuilding, you're not required to do specific movements. Um, you can train with lower loads if you want. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do. And, um, however, what I don't think the research has investigated, not that I'm aware of, uh, is it, what aspect of, uh, the seasons of when that happens is in the off season or prep. And in my experience, uh, injuries during contest prep are actually pretty common. Um, and they, it like, I feel like every prep I do, there's like a 50, 50 chance an athlete might get, might get hurt. And that, I think that's kind of high. Um, I think that shakes out to not being that much when you kind of look at the big picture perspective of a bodybuilder's career, where maybe they're getting on stage, you know, once every other year, which is pretty common these days. Um, you know, or even the folks who are competing, you know, every year, that's, that's still only like basically one or two injuries tops per year. But, um, but yeah, I think there's something, there's something going on there with they're getting injured more, more frequently during prep. And I, I think that there's a lot of reasons it could be happening and I would love to actually get your thoughts on this, but, um, but I, I it kind of makes sense to me that it'd be happening under those stress conditions and, and when nutrition's not necessarily in order, but yeah. Are you seeing anecdotally, are you seeing factors like nutrition or sleep, you know, as factors either mitigating fatigue or, or maybe not mitigating fatigue. And then that's what's yeah. creating these issues. Yeah. So I, I guess just, just for perspective on anyone who's not at all familiar with what is going on during contest prep, um, this is the time point for a bodybuilder where they are now entering a calorie restricted phase. That's going to extend, um, you know, if you look at like all the research on modern bodybuilders, like in the last oh, five years, there's been, over 10 case studies that have come out and a few studies on like a fair number of, of, uh, of competitors. And unlike back in the eighties and nineties, the literature showed like they dieted for eight to 14 weeks. Now the average is in the 20 to, to 30 range week range. And that's because, um, to get as lean as you have to, to be competitive, it just takes a really long time to lose all that body fat, especially, uh, among natural athletes, uh, drug free bodybuilders who, um, if they diet too fast, they sacrifice muscle mass. So this is a period where you're calorie restricted. Um, you are probably doing more activity in total to, to in the form of cardio. Um, and depending on what school of thought you're from, that might be high intensity interval training. It's not uncommon to see bodybuilders doing like sprint training sometimes, um, which normally goes very poorly. Um, which we can talk about, uh, but nonetheless, they're, they're doing cardio in addition to weight training. They've restricted their calories um, and their diets can be very restrictive in that process. 
uh, even when someone is following a relatively balanced diet, at a certain point to get down for say in a man from from say like nine percent body fat all the way down into the competitive ranges of say like four to six percent body fat, um, just the numbers they're working with in terms of calories kind of forces a restrictive diet. Um, and unless you just happen to be very gifted in terms of your your metabolism, um, so in terms of what you have to do nutritionally. And then how getting that lean affects your body in terms of like hormonal disturbances. You know, we've got good data showing that, you know, testosterone levels drop, cortisol levels go up, um, sleep can be disturbed. Amenorrhea is extremely common among women. Um, you know, so the, the position to put your body in is definitely one categorized by high stress. Uh, and I think we have some pretty fair evidence to suggest that when you are fatigued and stressed, you are exposed uh, to more injuries. There's, data on women in other sports when they uh, have amenorrhea they typically have a higher risk of injury because amenorrhea is kind of that state of being uh, in a state of energy insufficiency for a long period mm-hmm. it's the consequence of that and i think there's also data that's recently come out showing the equivalent basically does happen in men it's just that it's not quite as visible and trackable because you know we don't have a menstrual cycle so uh, so yeah i think it's it's a, it's a lot of combination of factors so with these factors potentially magnifying fatigue and stress. What does training look like? Because you also, you want to maintain muscle mass. Are you, are you looking to keep the same amount of, of work, volume of work and intensity of that work as you're going into less and less, you know, calorie intake? What does that look like? Yeah. And this, this is, I think where the psychology really plays into it, you know, having, having prepped, three years myself, three different seasons, and um, having prepped a couple hundred athletes and over the course of the team, I think we're, we've prepped over a thousand athletes now. Um, it's super common for bodybuilders to be trying to hold the line on strength. Um, and what that'll often look like is essentially like their, their RPE, their rating of perceived exertion or how close they are to failure within a set starts to climb during prep, even if you're programming for them, hey, you know, like we want to keep one or two in the tank, um, it's hard not to pay attention to the weight on the bar um, because that's something you were throwing around in, in the off season for 10 reps. And now, man, like you can you can barely get six. So at a, kind of at a certain point, and I've been there, I was like, I remember thinking, I am not going to bench less than 225 for six, like back in, I think, 2009 or 2011. And so I ended up like always going to failure on bench just so I could still be doing six reps for like four months, you know, um, versus actually having some kind of periodized and, uh, and, and controlled approach to intensity in the off season. And I think that that plays out in a lot of different ways. Um, as bodybuilders become uh, more aware and given the message that, that volume is a critical factor to hypertrophy, as we're finding out in the research, uh, they're, they're less and less willing to, to make reductions in volume, uh, during, during prep. And I think, you know, man, like injuries are expressed and, and, and number of occurrences per thousand hours. So obviously the more volume you do is kind of like a, just a direct mathematical, uh, equation to when you're going to get hurt. Right. Um, so I think when you're, the RPE tends to climb, the volume tends not to drop. This is kind of like your, your worst case scenario or your, your average uncoached bodybuilder, I would say. So you're really just trying to hold the line. And I think that puts you in a pretty precarious position on top of where you're already at just due to the, the diet and the cardio. Um, so, you know, I think 
I think you really have to have a game plan going in uh, with with what's reasonable and at what point you're going to to pull certain triggers and, and make certain decisions, or you can find yourself in an under recovered state trying to maintain a level of training intensity and volume that um, was progressive in the off season when you were 10, 20, 30 pounds heavier uh, and in a in a calorie surplus and not doing cardio. Is that just a conversation that you have? with with the athlete is it just you're setting expectations right up front like look dude you're you you're gonna lose a little muscle as you peak into this that's just what happens you're probably not going to be able to maintain the same intensities and if we keep the same volumes and we keep intensity of the workouts really really high we're potentially increasing our risk for not a whole lot of net benefit compared to dosing down a little bit so do you just have that discussion right up front and you try to find that sweet spot yeah, there's, there's there's a few different kind of coaching tactics for communicating this to an athlete that you have to take. Um, and it definitely depends on what is the bottleneck as far as their 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 uptake of the healthier approaches, you know, or what is their resistance in this case if we're talking about a coach-athlete relationship to something you're suggesting. Um, sometimes it's, it's an intellectual, you know, like it is kind of a complex thing to understand how um, yeah, ideally you would be doing a lot of volume during prep, but ideally you'd also recover from it. So you could, you know, grow while you diet, but it just simply doesn't happen. Um, you know, you're, you're dealing with sure in a, in a hypothetical magical world where you could recover from this volume, it would be helpful, but, uh, your recovery is compromised. So you can't, so it's actually not helpful. So, uh, we have to rob Peter to pay Paul, you know? So, uh, I have to kind of explain on the intellectual side if someone just doesn't quite get it. Uh, just the way things work, you know. Um, so understanding that uh, for one intensity, you know, the load, load on the bar doesn't really matter. You know, we can we can start working with uh, higher rep ranges. We can start compensating for uh, lower loads with a few more sets. There, there's a lot of ways to work around that. Um, and keeping, you know, changing our training configuration using RPE, using basically uh, auto regulation. So having floating off days, um, you know, moving your, your, your accessories kind of on, on a floating status so you can make any given day more or less work. Like if you have a refeed and you feel great the next day, um, those are all strategies you can use. Um, and just kind of talking an athlete to them about that, letting them know that, hey, the, the rigidity we had in your schedule is actually not required. It might be useful to provide structure, but if we can bring in a little more flexibility during this period, we can work around the highs and lows in your energy and, and your performance capabilities. So I think learning to strike when the iron's hot is, is a useful conversation to have with an athlete and letting them know, oh, okay, we, we can do this. Like, that's fine. We're going to have a diet break in a few weeks for where we're going to take a week at, at higher calories and we can really kind of go in there. Uh, we can place some, some higher volume days after those two days per week where I have higher calories. Sweet. So I can kind of keep my, my, my brain space focused on that. And then in other places, I'll just, you know, have to accept that I'm not quite as, as strong or not going to do as much. Um, but sometimes it's, it's not necessarily the logic of it. It's the, uh, like the fear of, of, of losing muscle mass or the fear of, of, of doing poorly. And in those cases, I think a lot of the times you just need to, to listen to the, listen to the person, you know, hear them out, let them talk and, and just normalize it. I think that's probably the, the most common tool I use is, is the, the two, those two things, explaining just kind of the, the science of it, how it works and that, you know, you don't need as much to maintain muscle as you need to build it. 
Um, and that, you know, if we're doing everything right, we're going to hold on to everything we can. Um, and then uh, talking about the strategies we could use, kind of letting them know that we have options. Uh, so kind of A, like this is supposed to happen. We have ways around it and it's very normal. I think that, that th those three things are the conversations I end up having the most. I think that spans lots of sports. I mean, we see it in, in, in weightlifting as well, or people, they're two or three weeks from a meet, or maybe just one or two, they're starting to taper off and they want to like start lifting as heavy as they can go because they're freaking out a little bit. Like they think they're weak, you know, they want to get stronger, mm -hmm. but then it's like the work has been done, you know, yeah. we'll maintain. I think that that period of time is probably more stretched because you're in a, a calorie deficit for so much longer. But I think the point that you made of it's a lot harder to build it than maintain it. We did the work. It's built, mm -hmm. it's there, yep. and we can, you know, we can kind of coast along for the ride. I think that's really, really important. Within that, are you looking at metrics? And I'm going to make a dichotomy here just for simplicity purposes, and then we can kind of like blend it between external training load metrics and auto-regulatory or internal training load metrics like RPE or session RPE. Are you looking at things like average intensities or absolute intensities and then tonnage as well? when you're manipulating somebody's intensity like that, you're like, oh, we can go lighter, but we can add a few sets. Obviously that changes some of those numbers. Mm -hmm. So from that external uh, load standpoint with those metrics, are those, are you looking at those at all really in this prep cycle? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I am. Cause that, it kind of gives you an idea of how effective your auto regulation is. It's not a conversation I typically will have with the athlete. Like, Hey, things aren't working too well. We need to make a change, you know? That, that typically isn't helpful. Um, I just talk about optimizing things or improving things or seeing if we can do it better. But so the metrics I look at, um, so there typically is an RPE value. Um, I use the RPE that I've done a fair amount of research on, not the traditional Borg RPE uh, that you would apply to resistance training, typically uh, as a sessional RPE. But I use uh, a set to set RPE based on repetitions in reserve. So those are familiar with the powerlifting world. That's what um, Mike Tushir has popularized, but basically it's just a distance from failure, you know? So a 10 RPE is the most you could have done with that load in terms of reps. Nine is one in the tank, eight's two in the tank, seven's three in the tank, that kind of thing. So um, I will prescribe typically a, an RPE, and sometimes that's along with the percentage of one RM. So they might, I might say something like three by eight at 75% uh, of one RM. And by the way, that should be a seven to nine RPE. Uh, and, you know, and then if, that first load is in that range, great, we can maintain it. If it's above or below, we can kick it up or down on your second, third, fourth sets, what have you. Um, that's the, the primary uh, tool I use to, to, to auto-regulate load. Um, sometimes I will also auto-regulate volume. So for example, uh, I might say, hey, we're gonna do back offsets and uh, with we're gonna drop the load 10% do, and you're gonna do uh, reps till you hit a uh, seven RPE and you know, you're going to do as many sets as you can until you, you lose a rep or something like that. Um, so that basically their, 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 their fatigue ability within session dictates how many sets they do. Uh, there's a few different ways you can do that. You can use a percentage, uh, and then a, a certain amount of RPE climb. So, you, okay, great. Once we get up to from an eight to a nine, now you stop and or keep the same load or you can drop the load and get back to the original RPE. Um, but nonetheless, uh, there, there's a number of systems you can use to, uh, within session, dictate how many sets you might allow them to do. Um, 
And uh, so those are the two systems I use to auto-regulate volume and load. And then um, the, the external metrics I look at is total volume. Uh, and there's a number of ways to look at that. I think the easiest way to do it for a bodybuilder, uh, given that most of the time they're going to be training in like the 6 to 20 rep range, is to just look at the number of hard sets. Um, you know, the research we have now, if you're taking a set of, you know, a 6 to 8 semi-near to failure, or you're taking a set of 15 to 20, same, same pretty near to failure, on an individual basis for a given muscle group, they're going to have a pretty similar hypertrophy stimulus. Obviously, one's going to be uh, a lot better for muscular strength, the other one for muscular endurance. But the kind of like net impulse that you're producing is similar enough uh, that, that we've seen in the literature that's going to produce similar amounts of growth. So I normally keep a track of number of sets. I keep a track of like estimated 1RM so I know what they should be capable of, which you can just back calculate from a low rep set with an RPE. Like, oh, okay, they, they did, you know, five reps at a nine. So I roughly know that's their, you know, their six rep max, right? So then I can kind of back calculate their 1RM. Um, and occasionally I'll have them do like an AMRAP, as many reps as possible test with, with, with one of the bigger lifts, um, partially for motivation purposes, sometimes for testing, but not necessarily. But so yeah, those are the external metrics I'm looking at is number of sets we're doing per, per muscle group, um, estimated one RM. And then the internal is the, uh, the within set RPE. Um, and, and then all just, of course, our, our subjective conversations to get an idea of how they're feeling. Sometimes someone will be able to actually complete the, the stuff you've prescribed to them and maintain the line pretty well. Uh, but they might tell you that like every set of squats is like in their head, they're playing like the Sparta theme and it's a Rocky montage, you know, just from like get, get under the bar. So sometimes I think the mental stress of just having to do some of the harder, more total body stressful movements um, can be pretty bad. It's not uncommon that I'll, in the last couple months of prep, start cutting off sets of like squat and deadlift patterns and, and throwing in things like leg press, uh, or, or like back extensions that are weighted just because they seem easier mentally. Do you track week to week progression as well of these either external metrics or internal metrics looking at, you're looking at progression and also kind of like in the literature right now in regards to training load, and they're not looking at physique athletes, but it's it's like field sport athletes, and they're taking all practice time into account. But this notion of acute to chronic workload ratio is looking at yep. a microcycle compared to the you know average of the past mesocycle, that type of thing. Are you are you seeing any trends with your athletes in regards to like if they spike volume too fast, yeah. too soon, or intensities, or even as they near prep? you know, not wanting to spike their, their training load too, too fast. Are you seeing anything like that? Yeah, I, um, so I haven't had, I don't feel I have had the granularity to really pick up on that, but yeah, I think there's, there's a fair amount of research on like monotony and strain. Uh, and then, like you said, if you see, like if you compare the previous four weeks of training volume to the current week, uh, you know, how, how does that compare to the previous weeks? And if it jumps up real quick and other sports, there's certainly a higher injury risk. Um, you know, I've spoken to the strength guys a bit and, and they've, they've shared some, some stuff, how they have seen that in powerlifters. So I wouldn't be surprised if it also would hold true at bodybuilders. Uh, the typical format of training I have um, when someone's in prep, one thing I do is I do start in, uh, instituting uh, more regular deloads. So 
in the off season, I'll often have like a reactive deload, which is something that I've been doing the last couple of years where I wait till performance starts to drop off. They're feeling kind of crappy. And then we go, right, let's, let's do a deload. And I have some, 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 uh, some metrics. I might have them report like sleep quality, motivation to train, uh, delayed onset muscle soreness, uh, joint pain, uh, and one other that I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but then based kind of off that aggregate score and, or our subjective discussion, we might throw in either like a, a light load, uh, low joint stress cycle of training that is still hard, but maybe there's like, like blood flow restriction machines, things like that. Um, nothing under 10 reps, that sort of thing. Um, or if they're feeling beat up overall when their joints are fine, we might just take their normal training and then just drop the volume and load a little bit, have a deload during prep though. Pretty much I have it as like a stock standard that comes around every four-ish weeks on average for each, for each uh, client. Um, and then I typically use uh, what you probably describe as a daily undulating approach, just that I have different rep targets on different days. It's not like, you know, same movements, 8.64 every week or anything like that. But um, there is variation in volume and load day to day. Uh, and then it typically follows a somewhat linear pattern uh, within mesocycle. So it might you know, the reps might descend over, over three weeks before deload happens, then we kind of start back up. So the perturbations in volume and load, mesocycle to mesocycle are, are pretty minor. Uh, there are changes. So we have easy and hard days uh, to kind of avoid any of that monotony and strain from getting too high. You know, we use the RPE system to, to prevent too much failure training, um, you know, on average across the week. So we, I, we avoid it the occurrence of the things that are associated with injury in the literature, even though I don't necessarily know if they're causing it. It's kind of just what I think is probably best practice. Right. Do you see any uh, utility for a session RPE rating in the literature that I was referring to with the team sport athletes, what they would have them do, they weren't actually, it was less reliable if they were looking at external metrics because they're talking mm -hmm. about practice time. They had like GPS on them. So they're measuring running and weight room time where I think, with physique athletes and, and barbell sport athletes, it can be a little bit more objective because that is the sport. It's just numbers, numbers, numbers. Mm -hmm. But in regards to the most reliable metrics that they were using, it was actually a session RPE times the number of minutes of the practice. And then that gave them, they called it an arbitrary unit. It was super creative mm -hmm. on the name there. But they just looked at, they added up all the arbitrary units of the week. Then they just looked at kind of week to week progression and saw that, oh, if you're doing like a 10% increase from week to week, you're generally pretty clear if it was like a crazy, you know, 15, 20% increase from week to week, you're risking things a little bit. And then they compared, you know, averages of the past month so that acute to chronic ratio. But session RPE, do you see any type of value for that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, um, the t I actually have used that a few times um, and I played with both. Uh, the time spent in, in, in the weight room or just the number of sets um, or number of reps, you, you can do both. And I've seen arguments for both in the literature. Um, the times I do it are when I'm actually not controlling the person's weight training. Um, so uh, like, for example, if, if I'm if I'm writing a training program, then I will. I think that that's like a good global metric of just an idea of, of where you're at. Um, but so that'll often happen when we're doing nutrition for, say, a weightlifter. I've done that a few times because I, I don't feel confident programming for a weightlifter. Um, and I would want them to have like an in-person coach because of the technical demands. And sometimes they do. But um, that gives me a, a kind of a bird's eye view of the stress from training, even though I'm not manipulating it. So I can make uh, nutrition calls that are informed by that. 
Um, but it's typically because I'm, I'm tracking number of hard sets, I'm tracking intensity, I feel like I'm capturing that same data um, and I could get an average for the week if I want, uh, you know, and, and use that. So I think that's actually a really good method. Uh, Jason Tremblay um, from the Strength Guys, he uses that a lot. He's talked about it, and his systems seem to be pretty damn robust. Um, and uh, and I think that is definitely something one can can do. Um, and I think I think in the end, so long as you have some kind of uh, metrics for both internal and external load, uh, and you are aware of how within week and between weeks and between mesocycles, uh, your total stress load is changing, um, then you're, you're, you're probably going to be all right. I think, I think you're doing a, a lot of good for your athletes. Um, if those are just kind of like, I'm not sure, you know, um, you know, if, if you're not doing anything crazy, it's probably not a problem, but it's, it's not a bad idea to kind of have your finger on that pulse. And I think those are all valid, valid ways that, uh, I've been linked in the literature to, to outcomes um, that, that we, we care about. So I would agree. I want to go back to that point that you made early on about uh, cardio and mm. in high intensity or high impact. Yeah. Maybe even if there is a differentiation between just saying hit cardio, because that could be high high impact or high intensity impact cardio. Yeah. Um, any, any negatives in regards to too much of that at some point during the prep or even the modality of it? Yeah. So what I always like to, so just, just for a little background context, I would say in the, the mid to late two thousands, the hit craze kind of hit the bodybuilding scene. And, um, there was very much the belief that if you wanted to burn stubborn body fat, accelerate fat loss and preserve your muscle mass, you needed to be doing high intensity cardio. And the best way to do that was with, was with high intensity intervals and that, you know, the standard slow, steady state cardio that, bodybuilders were traditionally doing was actually a notch and against us and that it was uh, actually contributing towards muscle loss because of the in, the the data on inner interference so there's a fair amount of data on concurrent training where people are doing uh, you know endurance training are losing some of the gains they would have had uh, had they been doing resistance training by itself um, and there's actually a fair number of problems with that whole perspective so uh, one is that, like you said, high intensity interval training um, doesn't have to be high impact. Uh, but for some reason, everybody wanted to sprint and sometime around like 2005 to 2012. Um, and I can't tell you, the, like if if some bodybuilder came to me and just said, hey, I'm doing hit. I've got a six month prep and I've been doing sprints. I've just been adding, you know, sprints to get lean. I would like if there was like a magical betting machine that popped up and said, uh, hey, what do you think? I, I got some odds for you. I would be like, put it all on this guy getting a hamstring strain. At some point, I, I will definitely, I'll take that bet. Because it's almost happened every single time I've seen it, like anecdotally, um, unfortunately. So that that's one, I just, you don't have to do certain modes of cardio. Like there's absolutely no, there's some kind of in traditional beliefs around like stair steppers and sprints and certain movements that are going to burn certain regions of fat. And I think we know pretty damn well now that that's not going to happen. It's the kind of the metabolic cost uh, of, of, of cardio that is, that is getting it done. So, and really just the energy expenditure. So, you know, if someone wants to do hit, that's, that's fine, but I think they should choose a modality that is going to have the lowest injury risk because it's really just calorie expenditure for a bodybuilder. So that could be, uh, you know, going uphill 
You know, that greatly slows you down. It slows the contraction rate, uh, even changes the range of motion a little bit. So you're not doing fast, hard contractions at extreme and, and ranges of motion. Um, you can do stair steppers. You can do uh, elliptical. You can do rowing. Uh, you can do a lot of different things uh, besides exposing yourself to a higher injury risk. So the the data on runners, when you're actually comparing trained sprinters to trained runners, uh, and you match it for total amount of time spent running, you see a much higher injury rate in uh, in sprinters. And that's trained sprinters, not bodybuilders pretending to be sprinters. So I think that that's a big one, and I always harp on that. Um, second is that a lot of the perceptions about hit, the kind of the whole argument of hit is better than list because list will cause interference, is essentially a straw man. Like all of the research on interference is on endurance training, like actually going out there and trying to get better at running marathons, um, not walking at like a, a forward incline and watching ESPN while you talk to your, your bro next to you, you know. Um, that is like so low of an intensity doesn't even register as cardiorespiratory fitness. Like you're not getting an adaptation. So how could you get interference? So I think that's the big one is that, um, calorie expenditure that is, is not of any intensity. Like you don't have to worry about walking your dog and getting the interference effect. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that I typically kind of talk bodybuilders out of that. Like, look, you know, if, you, if you're going out there and doing like a 30 minute run, it's hard then yeah, you, you like regularly and a lot, you could see some interference, especially if it's close to your training. Um, but if you are, you know, going on a walk in the morning, like nobody, it doesn't matter. So chill out. <laughs> so I think just kind of educating bodybuilders on that is important so that they are not exposing themselves to unnecessary injury risk from, you know, high intensity, which means high, high recovery cardio. So I, I typically use anything of a high intensity nature very sparingly, um, and I'm very careful with what modality it is. You'll, you'll never see my athletes unless they like beg me to going out and, and sprinting or running um, because I just I just see it go poorly too many times. I'd rather have someone do that in the off season if they really like running, um, and then we can negotiate about where they want to put it. Like you know, let's keep that separated from training, that type of thing. But um, but yeah, so I think I think that's a big one. It's just there. There's been some some incorrect beliefs based on semi-correct data about hit uh, that that has led a lot of bodybuilders down paths to getting snapped up. So, so it's not that high intensity interval training gives you some type of different physiological response. It's just a shorter amount of time. So if you hate walking and just the the time it takes to do that, you can burn calories a little faster by doing high intensity, but potentially based you know depending on the modality that you use potentially increasing risk mm. uh, if, if you're if you're choosing to do something that's putting your joints at end range. And ultimately, it sounds like it just comes down to preparedness. Like if you haven't yeah. been training to be a sprinter, the, you know, sprint. right. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> or at least e ease into it sometime when you're not like starving yourself. Right. You know? <laughs> so would you say that, let's say you've done the math and you said, you know what, if I could actually walk 18 miles a day for the next two weeks in my prep, would that be, would that be fine? Just low, super, yeah. Absolutely, man. Yeah, like I, I have, uh, I typically, um, I use cardio relatively sparingly just because it's not that effective. You know, like the the amount of cardio you have to do to make a big dent in the total amount of, uh, you know, net energy deficit you need to get fat losses is a fair amount. And there's a number of reasons for that. One, like the calorie burn you see on like the tracker at the gym is is typically overestimating. 
two, people think that's the amount of calories they burn in addition to their 24-hour burn, but they forget that that hour walk they went on, they were going to be doing something normally, and they were probably going to be burning one to three calories a minute, even if they're relatively sedentary. So burning, you know, six calories a minute at most for that low intensity session, it might only be like three calories a minute that they, that's in addition to it. Uh, and also they forget that, you know, if you get yourself tired from cardio earlier in the day, you might just burn less calories later in the day from being tired. Um, so like there, there's a fair amount of data showing that the body can, can compensate in terms of net energy expenditure, uh, in terms of like a uh, neat going down. And I think it's much more capable of doing that in, in the face of a small perturbation and total daily energy expenditure from doing cardio than it is from slashing, you know, 300 calories away from your food. Um, so the, uh, yeah, this, the effectiveness of cardio is, is unfortunately not, not too great. So it's not uncommon for my athletes to be doing maybe you know, two to four cardio sessions by the end of prep. And at the, at the extreme end, when we have say, you know, lighter weight athletes or women who I just don't want to take their calories too low, even if it kind of makes sense. If you look at it as a body weight multiplier, I just don't want them to be that restricted in terms of food. They might be doing six, seven days of cardio. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You can do uh, low intensity stuff. And just to echo your point about there not being any kind of uh, metabolic magical effects of hit, um, let's even entertain the idea that there are, you know, when you, when you create that kind of a quick disturbance to homeostasis, you're getting a hormonal response. It does help fat loss. I'll even entertain that idea, but let's talk about what hit typically looks like. That's, you know, 15 to 60 seconds of going pretty hard or all out and then resting maybe one to two times that length or three times that length and doing it again. That's also what we call doing like 10 to 20 rep sets of weight training, right? It's basically the same thing. So in terms of the actual metabolic stress, you doing a hard set of 12 squats, resting a couple minutes and doing it again, awesome. You're already getting that twice a week on leg day. So what do you really think you're getting that's different? Nothing. So I, I think, um, yeah, not, not to be anti-hit. I do think it can be nice to get things done in an efficient way. And, you know, if you're hopping on something that's low impact, absolutely. And if you space it appropriately from, from your, your weight training, I think that's totally fine. But, you know, the typical cardio protocol that I might give out there is going to be, you know, one hit session a week of something low impact and then maybe like one to three sessions of, of walking or cycling at a low pace. So if you're talking about the potential concurrent uh, or like conflicting adaptations, it's almost like the hit would be more of a of a distractor to your strength training than than the, the slow stuff potentially. Yeah, so there's there's basically two different hypotheses for for why interference occurs. There's the practical and there's the molecular arguments. Um, and yeah, like hit probably isn't going to be causing any like actual divergent adaptations at the at the the micro level, but it definitely is going to prevent you. Like if you were to do, you know, a a hit session and then be like, right, let's go do some squats and RDLs. Like that's not going to go well, you know? Um, so that the practical concerns are definitely there, but it's, it's not that hard to avoid them. You know, there's data showing that if you separate days, uh, so like if you training the same muscle group in high intensity cardio versus resistance training, if you just simply put them on different days, uh, like a huge portion of the interference effect goes away even separating them by, I think, at least six hours, if I recall correctly, makes a big difference. Um, and then, you know, basically there's kind of this hierarchy of what you can do. Best case scenario is you do them on different days. Uh, it's kind of second best case scenario, you separate them by six hours. Third best case scenario, you do it after weight training, which I think, um, you know, the biggest thing to take a hit there is the quality of the cardiorespiratory work, 
which is fine because you don't really care about whether your VO2 max is going up. You care about whether or not you burn a lot of calories. So I think those are kind of the take home messages uh, to avoid that interference effect specifically. As far as how that affects um, injury risk, I don't know, but I think that's going to mostly come down to modality. When we're talking about injury risk reduction, you know, usually it's it comes down to three factors. We talk about sleep and training load, and well, I've already got three and nutrition. Can you <laughs> can you talk a little bit about nutrition, both anecdotally and whatever you've seen in the literature about specific dietary issues, then uh, increasing risk or reducing risk of injury? Sure. Yeah. So. So yeah, in some ways it's, it's pretty straightforward. Like, you know, when you're in a, in, in an energy deficit, like you're going to be more fatigued because you're not going to be able to replenish glycogen fully. Um, you know, your body fat levels are going to be lower. So you just have less energy. So you're going to be in a bit more of a net fatigue state. And there's a fair amount of research in other sports, granted, where if you're training in a fatigue state, you're more likely to incur an injury, uh, acutely and probably chronically. You know, we typically see more injuries during periods of time when there's not as much energy availability in athletes. And I mentioned earlier in the podcast kind of anecdotally, but when you look at uh, female athletes with amenorrhea, which basically tells you they are uh, have a relative energy insufficiency going on there, uh, they typically get exposed to more, to more injuries. And a, a typical component of that is that they're not eating enough for their activity level, which you're doing purposely as a bodybuilder. So you're, you're definitely... Um, I would say there, there, there's there's strong indirect evidence to suggest that uh, during contest prep, uh, because you're creating an energy deficit, you're probably going to be exposed to more injury. Um, and anecdotally, that certainly tracks most of the injuries I see with my athletes kind of get backloaded in, in a contest prep. You know, they typically happen at the point where they're we're, we're cutting calories pretty hard. Body fat levels are coming down. There's a fair amount of cardio. So there's a lot of conflicting variables, but it certainly seems to go hand in hand with that kind of what I would call not the very end of prep, because if you do it right, hopefully that's when you're you're pretty damn precarious and you're making slower progress. This is a kind of percentage of your of your weight loss per week. But and like that, like if you divide into four phases, like the third phase of prep is where it really sucks. It's where you're trying to get over that hump. Um, you're pushing very hard to kind of break that quote unquote settling point that your body seems to have. Uh, kind of like for men on average where you're going from around like eight or nine percent body fat down to like five or six and for women you could just add about you know seven or eight percent to that to kind of get an idea of, of where you're trying to get to um, so yeah that phase is where I see a lot of injuries happen um, so that's where we try to be careful as far as the the literature of what I've seen um, outside of that kind of indirect evidence probably the, the closest direct evidence I've seen it's a study that actually just recently came out by Strombach. It's on uh, powerlifters. So it was a, a review, sorry, not a review. It was a questionnaire-based uh, survey that they sent out to the sub-elite powerlifters in Sweden and uh, got a bunch of demographic information and then just calculated in a cross-sectional manner uh, odd and risk ratios with, with injury. And they found that one of the highest predictors, I think it had like a six-fold compared to baseline uh, relationship with injury was having dietary issues. Uh, and this is among, among powerlifters. So, you know, that's probably related to those who are cutting for a weight class, uh, people who are maintaining a low, a relatively low body fat to be in a weight class and therefore have to be semi-restricted all the time. That's something I see a lot in both, uh, the weightlifting and powerlifting world. You know, hey, I'm really only competitive at 66, but my body would love to have me walk around at 71. So, 
you know, I'm kind of in this constant state of being careful. And then I have to diet for a couple months and then do a water cut at the end. Uh, those athletes in my experience, and apparently, you know, this association was found in a study tend to, to, to have a few more injuries than, than average. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that, I think that's, that's a pretty good indication, you know, in powerlifting, there's a lot of similarities to the way bodybuilders train. It's not the same, but like if I was to say, Hey, what sport would be a decent proxy? That would probably be uh, one of the closer ones. So I think there's, there's a fair amount of research that would support that, um, you know, what you do with your nutrition can have a big impact. The one downside to this study is it being cross-sectional in nature. You could also make the argument that maybe injuries are causing people to lose track with their diets. Like they're just a little depressed. So, you know, the donuts come out, which I can understand. But I think, I think based on the strength of that relationship, I think that's unlikely. I think we're probably seeing, uh, I would, I would guess if it was a causal relationship, the direction would be going uh, towards, uh, you know, dietary issues predispose you to, to injury. And for the listeners, the title of that study was Prevalence and Consequences of Injuries in Powerlifting. And it's open access, so you can get your hands on that anytime. I, I had actually not seen it until Eric brought it to my attention. And yeah, there's a lot of factors. We could be going either way, chicken or egg conversation here. But I think at least it, it gets the question, it gets the, the party started on a lot of, of future research. Mm-hmm. Um, where I don't think that we've looked into these these barbell sport athletes in regards to they mentioned training load in there and, and all types of different lifestyle factors. So I thought it was pretty darn cool. All of the cans of worms that they opened potentially. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you, so we talk about, you know, powerlifters for a second. You mentioned bodybuilders have the advantage of being able to drop intensity as they're, as they're peaking into prep because their goal is to not, not to lift the most weight possible, but for a powerlifter it is. And then taken to a powerlifter who is maybe cutting from a programming standpoint, are there considerations that you're looking at? Obviously your, you know, intensity is going up as you're peaking into a meet, but if you know that they're cutting, is the volume even less than it would be if they weren't cutting? Are you looking at doing more singles, you know, like cluster type work instead Mm of doubles and triples? Yeah. Yeah, powerlifters are a whole other can of worms uh, to kind of use the phrasing that you just used because you're right. A few of the, the, the I think the options with the most utility are now off the table. So uh, I, I would say even more than than worrying about load, uh, like exercise selection, you're, you've got to do some squats, benches, and deadlifts. So if you've got someone with like a really irritated pec minor or a shoulder strain. Um, yeah, you can throw some close grip in there, but you've got to figure out some way for them to practice the bench. If, if they're still going to do the competition and they're not straight up injured, then they still need to figure out a way to bench. Um, and same thing goes for, you know, like a QL or a lumbar strain or, you know, a hip or, or knee niggle with, with, with deadlifts and squats respectively. So you're, you're kind of like doing something to the athlete. You know, you probably shouldn't, but that you have to is what it feels like from a coaching perspective. Once, of course, they've said, yes, uh, you know, I've, I've been to the, my medical professional. I'm not acutely injured. <laughs> like, no, this is not a, a, a meniscus tear. No, I don't have a slip disc. Um, yes, I'm in a little bit of pain, but yes, I want to keep going and I want to compete and I can do it. And yeah, I did this last year too. Um, I mean, maybe there's a more global conversation to have with them once the, the prep is done. Uh, and maybe they need to have a closer relationship with the medical professional. But in kind of the short term, what do you do as a powerlifting coach with a consenting adult who's not currently injured, but is a little beat up? 
um, you have to make some decisions that you're kind of like semi comfortable with. Um, so yeah, you can't switch them to an RDL or a good morning for the deadlifts because it's whatever it's hip extension, you're a bodybuilder. You can't throw them on, you know, a, a hammer strength machine or, or just have them do dumbbells instead of bench. You kind of have to expose them to the thing that hurts. So one of the things that I've seen is very successful, um, is really focusing on, uh, specificity, believe it or not. Um, so for example, doing a single at like a seven or eight RPE and that's it, you know, so a couple singles per week, um, it, it can, can definitely keep strength. We've seen that pretty repeated in, 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 in the literature. Um, you know, there's, uh, Jeremy Lenicky. He, he's promoted the idea that, um, you know, hypertrophy and volume have a very minimal impact on strength. While I don't necessarily agree with him on all points, he's highlighted a lot in the literature where, you know, people doing one RM testing maintain their ability to still perform decently well in the one RM test just from testing alone. And while that is often untrained individuals, um, and I don't think that's true of, uh, powerlifters to the same degree, you can still leverage that to some amount. So within a microcycle, you take someone who has, has a, a niggly hip or knee and you just have them squat to like a, you know, a single at a seven RPE to start one of their sessions and a single at eight RPE later in the week. And you've got to, I mean, that's basically squatting at like a high 80% of one RM, like 88, 89% of one RM. And then like, you know, 90, 91%, 92% of one RM that is similar enough to a one RM. They're probably going to maintain strength and it's going to give you a good kind of, uh, feeling of the pulse of where their strength is at. And then if you need to have enough volume, like if they're not close to comp and that can't just become part of a more extreme taper, uh, you know, if they're still eight weeks out or something like that, there's no reason you can't get them on a safety bar squat or a front squat or even a leg press afterwards or, you know, a step up or a lunge um, after the fact to try to uh, give them the muscular stimulus to, to maintain all of the supportive tissue uh, and some of that co-contraction work and all that stuff that they might not get just from that one single repetition on the big three. And you can apply that to, you know, bench press. You know, then doing close grip afterwards or doing dumbbells or, like I said, even a hammer strength chest press. Uh, and, you know, I think if someone's not convinced of me saying, hey, you know, we've seen some literature on older people who if they do a leg press once a month, they maintain the leg press strength. Sure. But think about what we see with the deadlift. How many different systems out there have a relatively low frequency of deadlifts or only use singles and use them pretty sparingly, uh, yet people still make progress. Uh, yeah, sure. Some of that's from the crossover from squats, uh, but I think you can also see that you don't need a ton of of work if you're being pretty highly specific. You know, in the powerlifting circles, most people uh, have a relatively higher intensity on deadlifts than their their squat or bench. So I think that's something we can use to our advantage when we're kind of down and out, unless the issue is specifically intensity related. Like if you've actually got a load related, um, like if just man, when when you go heavy, it hurts a lot. That is probably the time I'd recommend the athlete to, to maybe take some time off or consider pushing back the competition because that tells me that there's actually something – I don't know. You, you'd actually be a better person to ask on this. Uh, my impression is that if someone has a load-related pain issue, maybe we shouldn't be going into a 1RM competition. You know, that, that might be more than just a niggle, right? You know? Well, that's – uh, yeah, I mean that conversation is, is had – Regard, I mean, I'm thinking of somebody right now that I have who fits this exact bill, came into my office three weeks out, and it was an intensity-related issue. His, his the best mm-hmm. deadlift was like 270 kilos. He's a strong guy um, yeah. and can't can't pull anything over 200 off the floor without 
significant without having to drop the bar. And his and his meet is in three weeks. And so the first and I knew this with him coming in the door. So the, I had already prepped the conversation of uh, is the meet a good idea? Do you actually what what I can do for you and what I can't do for you if you decide to continue to kind of walk into this meet? And this, the decision was made that I want to that he wants to compete and he wants me to help mm-hmm. as best I can. And he understands that it's not ideal. And we ruled out anything that, you know, pathologically would, would give me would give me worry or pause to think that we would do some right. type of long-term damage. So we just, you know, we signed off on that, but it's the exact scenario. It, what, what you said makes perfect sense to me, and I completely agree. Specificity reigns supreme, and then you uh-huh. find thresholds. So yeah. his training logs, as he would, you know, report back to me as he's training, is like, well, 180, 180 you know, a little bit of pain. It was like a 5 RP of 4 RP, something stupid easy because he's a strong guy. But then I jumped to 215 and I couldn't pull it, so I just cut it off right then and there. And I'm like, all right. So the only work you got in was a couple warm-up sets at 180, and then you jumped 35 kilos and you couldn't pull that, so then it was just done. And so then we had a conversation of let's find a middle ground. And it's, yeah. it seems so it seems like it's common sense, but to a lifter, it's not like if they, not necessarily, at least if they can't lift the way that they want to lift, then they don't lift at all sometimes. But mm-hmm. like you said, I mean, if you're, we're in this phase now where we have to do the comp, we have to do the sport. So, yeah. so that was the conversation that we had is basically touching on what you said is finding, finding a threshold, couldn't pull 215, but could pull 195 for two or three singles. That's heavier than 180. So we're on the right mm-hmm. track, you know, and now, since then, it's been a couple of weeks. We've pulled 220, you know, being able to do it. So that's good. Um, mm-hmm. Was was just gave me an email and was like, hey, I'm going to work up to my openers at the meet. I plan on opening at 245. So his plan was, this is week of, his plan was to pull 245 when the heaviest that he'd pull off the floor was was nowhere near that over the past four or six weeks. So we had that conversation, probably not a good idea to basically max your deadlift <laughs> that week. Yeah. So it's like, but it's, it's exactly what you said. Rule out anything insidious or what you feel is pathological to the point that you think that there would be long-term issues other than the risk of developing chronic pain, which is a risk. If we prolong, I would say structure aside, if we prolong your experience of pain, then that experience can be then become conditioned to the sport, to the training, to the exercise. And that's, you know, now we're, now we're into the kind of the psychology of, of of chronic pain, but that's a risk. And we talk about that as well. But like you said, if they sign off and that's what they want to do, we can help them as best we can. And, and, you know, training load is probably the best tool that we have Mm -hmm. in regards to that. So I mean, what you said makes, makes complete sense. Um, are in regards to this, you know, sleep, nutrition, training load, are you looking at that is just kind of an all-encompassing approach. Like you can't separate one from the other. You have the conversation about those three factors with every athlete and you try to exude the importance of all three almost equally or are you you hedging your bets on one? How do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of ways you can do it. I've talked to, you know, I have a a ton of colleagues who work in the same space as me, Um, not even within 3DMJ, but also outside of it. And some take a much more quantitative approach. So they'll get uh, like actual number values rated from their athletes on their perception of sleep quality, um, you know, tra- training load, like we talked about those metrics. Um, you know, they, they look at their energy availability 
and uh, and they're able to kind of get an idea of at any given time which one is doing worse or better. Um, but I also think you can certainly, as long as you're aware of all the same variables, take a more qualitative approach. And I personally like that. Um, like, for example, my athletes report in ideally uh, via video report. So they sit down, turn on their, 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 their camera and start talking to me for, for 10 minutes. And I've also got their spreadsheet so I can I can dig into the data if I want. Um, but there's a lot to be gleaned from uh, the, 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 the way they look, their voice, uh, the, the tempo of their, of their talking, uh, the language they use, the questions they ask, uh, you know, they sometimes get emotional, you know, like it. So I think, um, opening it up to kind of that, um, closer to real conversation, especially as an online coach is really important. Uh, cause I think not everything always gets captured and, there, there's an artificiality to rating things, which uh, sometimes what you would like it to be or what you're afraid of it being becomes what the rating is versus what it actually is. And that's um, easier to parse out when you're having a uh, kind of a free flowing discussion. So I often take a more I lean primarily on, you know, qualitative approaches and athlete feedback. And it kind of matches my my coaching stance. I take more of like an athlete centered you know, autonomous, supportive kind of role with my athletes. I'm not a dictator. I'm very much um, here to give them, you know, advice. They're, they're, they're the ship captain. I'm the navigator, you know, but, you know, in, in some ways, obviously there is a time and a place to say, you know, I really don't think we should do this. Here's what I would say, or, hey, we need to get, you know, a, a physical therapist here for, for, for me to feel comfortable still working with you. You know, there's a scope of practice issue, et cetera. But I think the overall role is that, you know, I'm standing next to the athlete, slightly behind them, hand on their shoulder and saying things in their ear to help them get to where they want to go, uh, you know, versus pushing them or, or standing in front of them, pulling them, you know. So I think both techniques are very valid. Um, and there are times, especially if, if like I've had athletes who just aren't great communicators. Um, and that could be a function of it being via online. Sometimes it's as simple as they don't have a good enough internet connection to upload videos on YouTube and, you know, and send me unlisted YouTube videos. And that's where I've only got email communication or a Skype if we want to do it. Um, and you know, then we have scheduling logistics for Skype. So that's when I go, right, I'm going to give you this Excel sheet where we have a rating value for each one of these things each week. So I can try to get a little more granularity on, on my perception. So I would say they're all interconnected. And they, you know, different ones can be more important at other times. Some are really quite, I mean, like if you turn the dial up on any one of those, you can have a serious problem. Like if you're like, right, we're on 800 calories, you know, the wheels are going to fall off. Or if you go, okay, sweet. So you haven't, you've been sleeping three hours a night. You've got like, you know, a week and a half before something goes, goes haywire. Um, but within the kind of the normal realms of what I see during prep, they're all pretty similarly, uh, affecting the, the outcomes, I would say. And they're all pretty interconnected. So be flexible and it depends is what you're saying. Yeah, very helpful response. Always. <laughs> always. <laughs> well, no, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I think sometimes we can get stuck in being metric monsters and trying to mm. trying to objectify everything and, and get data, um, whether or not that data is reliable and, and valid and if it means anything. And then, like you said, sometimes it's another number that the athlete can see themselves and be like, oh, man, 
this isn't good. Or like they're reporting their sleep quality value and they've been reporting poor quality, poor quality, poor quality. It almost like feeds into itself a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of like what you're saying about chronic pain, you know? Totally. And, and so there's push, there's this pushback in the field of like getting the getting the pain rating to to not be such a common question that they're asked. Like every time they're in the door, oh, how's your pain? Rate your pain. Put a number to it. Is it is it four today or is it five today? It just like gets them perseverating on this concept of like, yes, I feel pain. Yeah. Let me rate it. Oh, what is it now? I still feel pain. You know, it's exactly what you said. Now, are there times where we need to track progress and objectify these things. Yeah, absolutely. Just like you said, in certain contexts with certain individuals, it can just work better, but uh, it's important. It's certainly important to be flexible. Yeah. You know, even though this is not on the same, you know, topic of this podcast where I see that the most is I, for a a powerlifter trying to cut a weight class or a bodybuilder trying to get in stage shape, one of the metrics I will use right from the start is a daily weigh-in in the same conditions. And that becomes, at points where they're stalled out, the biggest uh, indicator of their happiness for the day and, and the biggest potential problem. You know, you step on the scale, you've installed for four days, all of a sudden you're feeling great, you're hitting your numbers, you're looking good in the mirror, training's going well, but no, today sucks. Because that's your, your primary metric, especially for a weight class restricted, you know, where it's not, you can't fall back and go, right, you know, I'm looking really good, coach said that I look solid in my posing videos, like, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell a powerlifter, yeah, but your pec straightations are looking really good, bro. You know, like they're they're like, damn it, I'm not going to make weight, you know, so, and that, that can be really uh, destructive sometimes. So I will very frequently have people just get off the scale because even when you talk someone out of the logic of like, right, you know, like that weighs everything. That could be water. That could be you stressed. Hell, you seeing a stalled weight could be creating more cortisol, creating the weight to be stalled. Like uh, you they go, right, I get that, but it's still messing with my head. And in the weightlifting and powerlifting community as well, when they're in the point of their accumulation phase where they kind of feel like beat up and they're they're getting crushed by numbers that, you know, are well below their maxes, uh, can kind of have the same, like, what is happening right now? I'm not going to hit my numbers in a month. You know, they, then the conversation Absolutely. we had, like, the part of the process, this the fatigue will decay. That's the whole point. We're kind of you know, we're overreaching on purpose. And, but to your point, you know, if they, if you're not with them and they're missing these lifts, that may make them go a little heavier than they're supposed to, to try to quote unquote, make up for feeling weak or do more, do more sets to, you know, to try to, to catch up. Um, so it just comes down it sounds like it comes down to making sure you set expectations right from the jump and then continue to reassure and remind them of the of where they are in the process, where they're supposed to be, where they will be, and do so in a way that's like you're saying it for the first time. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, Eric, we could talk all day, but man, this was awesome. Where can people find out more about you, find out more about the things that we've talked about, get more into the work that you've done? You've got you've got research all over the place. Where where can they find that stuff? Yeah. So depending on, on, on your level of nerdiness. So like if you're just a coach or an athlete, I would say check out 3dmusclejourney.com. Uh, that's kind of our one-stop shop where you can find our blog, our link to our YouTube, link to our podcast. Uh, and there are also links to my books, The Muscle and Strength Pyramids, which are about training and nutrition. Uh, and you can even find a link to Mass, which is uh, monthly applications in strength sport. Uh, we're actually this coming 
I'm not sure when this podcast will drop, but very shortly from when it has, uh, our newest issue will come out. It comes out every month on the 1st. Uh, and we actually reviewed Strombach 2018, the, the, the powerlifting injury survey data we talked about in there. So that's that's kind of maximum nerd level or almost maximum nerd level if you want to go to mass. And if you really want to go like maximal, maximal nerd level, um, you can check me out on ResearchGate to see the research I've done on bodybuilders and powerlifters. Uh, just search Eric Helms on there. It should come up. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's pretty much all the spots. And if you want to kind of stay up with me on a more day to day, you can follow me on Instagram at Helms 3DMJ. And just to reiterate what mass is. So like always the pushback with being quote unquote evidence-based and, and diving into the literature is just the, the mass amount of literature that comes out on a mm -hmm. daily basis. Thousands of articles that come out trying to keep up with those things, uh, is impossible, but you try to you know do the best you can. You've, you pick the, the relevant and, and you filter out blah, blah, blah. But what mass is, is you guys taking all of this data and, and information and distilling it down into digestible format for really anyone. Um, yeah, it's absolutely. A, yeah, it's an unbelievable resource. So it, definitely check that out, everyone. And we'll put all that stuff in the show notes. Eric, thanks again for being on the show. It was an honor, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Great to be on. Uh, hopefully we will we'll talk soon. Thanks everyone. Thank you.